From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Today, we're talking about one of the most revolutionary forces in America, teenage girls. Throughout history, teenage girls have consistently stood on the front lines for change. At 16, Sybil Ludington outran Paul Revere in warning American troops of the impending threat of the British. At 15, Barbara Johns staged a school boycott that helped initiate Brown versus Board of Education. At 19, Heather Tobis tried to help herself and other girls around her navigate a pre-row world by starting Jane, a clandestine network that connected young women with access to safe abortions. Never heard of these girls? Yeah, neither had we. The achievements and contributions of girls and young women are often under-recorded and dismissed. A new book, Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions by Maddie Kahn interrupts this cycle of erasure. Maddie brings to the forefront girls and young women's trailblazing activism, from the labor movement of the 19th century to the fight against climate change now. Author, writer, and editor Maddie Kahn joins us today to talk about the revolutionary power of girls, the challenges they face, and how they rise up consistently to meet the moment. Maddie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I want to start off by congratulating you on your upcoming book. I know it doesn't hit until June, but just like a pre-congratulations, congratulations. You've written about your obsession with women who defied the odds when reflecting back on your studies in college. And Young and Restless, it is about just that young women defying the odds and standing at the forefront of revolutions as a result. How long has this idea for this book been on your mind and what inspired you to write it? The idea of girls doing this work has been on my mind since I was in college myself. I was someone who in high school was really involved in climate activism. I looked around and saw lots of other girls who were involved in that. And I think I got to college and totally expected to keep pursuing that. I did somewhat. I also became very deeply involved in writing. Uh, And then when I started writing professionally, working at magazines uh, and at Elle in particular, I guess I always had my eye turned toward teenage girls, remembering how I felt as a teenage girl who really wanted to be heard and knowing that there was this sort of nexus of power in the world of high school girls that I never totally wanted to shake. Um, So when I was at Elle, I think that was where the seeds for the book really were planted. I write in the book a little bit about meeting Marley Diaz, who, when I met her, was not even a teenage girl. She was 11 years old, uh, full of vim and vigor. She was the initiator of this campaign called A Thousand Black Girl Books. She wanted to collect a thousand books that had black girls as the main characters. She used to say she was tired of reading books about boys and their dogs. And uh, we interviewed her for L.com. And I think maybe if it had come at a different point in my own life, I would have thought, you know, that's cute. Uh, and those are nice ideas, but I was close enough to it to feel like, why am I not hearing from girls like this more? Is this just out there and we're not tapping into it? 
Uh, So the book didn't get started for many years after that, but I really think back and thought back when I was working on the book off into that summer and that feeling of all that potential and wanting to tap into it. Um, And so I think the book really started then. How did you start hearing about these stories? The Sybil Luddington story that you mentioned, I had heard in the course of reporting another story for Elle magazine. I had followed then Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney who was campaigning at the time for a women's history museum that is still in the process of being finalized and built on the National Mall. I started to do research, you know, when the book was still just an idea before I had even sat down and worked on the proposal. And it was humbling. It was humbling to think I was the recipient of an incredible education, went to a great high school, went to a great college, and these were not stories that I knew. And they weren't stories that I understood, even if I did have a sense of you know, what the contours of the history was. Of course, I knew Brown versus Board of Education, but I didn't understand at all that uh, that there had been a case that was part of the five cases that made up Brown that actually students themselves had brought. I totally didn't know that story. And so, you know, the holes in my education started to emerge and that made the project of the book feel more pressing. And it greatly expanded the scope of the project in a way that still terrifies me. Uh, But it made it a lot more fun and um, made it a lot more interesting. And I think uh, made, made it more urgent to tell this narrative. I mean, I feel very similar to you, uh, though I didn't know this history before actually reading your book. So I didn't, I'd actually didn't know all the gaps that I had. I love that you take these moments that are notable in history, right? Like we all know Paul Revere. We all know Brown versus Board of Education. We all know Rosa Parks, right? Like we all know these stories that are so seminal to the foundation of our country, like the foundation of our civil rights. And then you find this like character that was not well documented in history, doesn't make the mainstream story. I want to talk about a few of them that you detail in the book. And I want to start with Sybil. So you mentioned how Sybil Luddington, the real Paul Revere, if we want to say that. And her epic ride has been doubted because it's not included in many formal records from the time. Only family memoirs and oral tradition account for it. That note made it clear to me that erasure begets more discrediting. Um, What sources did you use to break out of this cycle and unearth some of these girls' stories, knowing that they weren't necessarily well-documented and sometimes therefore extremely doubted. I think that there are, and I cite them in the book, examples of histories that came out later, you know, 50 years later, 75 years later, that include what is already being pitched as kind of apocrypha and uh, sort of myth of the era. I think girls are always, maybe blame it on our fairy tales, always couched in the language of, drama and myth and their contributions often get told as fairy tales. Um, And I think Sybil is a victim of that for sure. I think one thing, you know, when I encountered the resistance to her story in the history, which came later from scholars, scholars who spoke to me about her work and and didn't doubt that she had done something, but didn't know exactly maybe what she had done. uh, I, I tried to understand Uh, in my own reaction, what I really wanted from her story. I think that is a theme that I came back to in the book. You know, I think I too had an investment in a certain narrative about Sybil Luddington and about many of the girls 
that are included in the book. Did I want them to have had contributions or did I want them to be great and epic and first and the most important and the supplanted, you know, in a way that forced them back into that language of metaphor, fairy tale, myth? Um, and, and that was something that I was always grappling with. And it's, it's the reason that I wanted to start with Sybil, even though she is on these sort of shaky historical foundations, because I think the way that she is brought up in history, either to be discredited or to be evidence of, you know, total and complete erasure, explains a little bit about how girls and their stories are used without fully being necessarily appreciated. Um, and I thought Sybil was a really good example of that. I pretty much feel, having spoken to scholars, that there was a girl named Sybil Luddington. Her father was warned. You know, she existed. She was real. But I also understand that it's very easy for a girl's life to be turned into metaphor. And I think Sybil is one of those people who has suffered that fate. I felt less invested by the end and figuring out, quote unquote, what really happened and more invested in using her story as a lens and a prism through which to hold myself accountable as I went through the rest of the project of the book of talking to girls and making sure I was really checking in with myself. Was I hearing them for what they were saying or was I grafting the narrative that I wanted to further onto the stories that I was getting from them? Um, so she was a, I hate to say, a useful yardstick, but in that sense, she really was. And, and I think that was the reason it was important to start with her. It almost feels like what you're saying is that when excellence is embodied by girls, teenage girls, young women, when excellence is embodied by them, we believe that they should or need to then be heroes. I do think that that is a narrative that exists in our present day ecosystem. Um, I want to get to a couple of other stories. I want to talk about Claudette Colvin. So, you know, with Sybil, the historical record was a part of this erasure, but sometimes movement organizers themselves have decentered girls' activism. I think you illustrate this well with Claudette Colvin, who as a teen helped jumpstart the Montgomery bus boycotts by refusing to give up her seat on the bus months before Rosa Parks did. There's much more to Colvin's story that you get into and you discuss that she never got the credit because movement leaders did not want to press the focus on Colvin, who was unmarried and pregnant at the time. And this brought up so much for me, mostly around respectability politics, like that there's a reason that girls were pushed out of the frame because of circumstance, perhaps something that was deemed unsavory at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Claudette's story is so interesting. She was in, yeah, a family that didn't feel like it could be the standard bearer to the people bringing these kinds of cases for the movement that she was meant to galvanize. The bigger question, though, of quote-unquote respectability politics was pervasive throughout the book. And one of the things I tried to get at in these stories is that girls are in this very strange position, that part of the reason, I think, that they became incredible emissaries at their time for these various causes, abolition, you know, civil rights, women's rights, and you can go on and on through the list, is that we are, as a culture, actually willing to be told off a little bit more by girls than we are by grown women. 
that there's something about, you know, a finger-waving girl that people will tolerate and accept, even if the history books never adequately record her, that a grown woman who is telling you what's what, people, especially men, of course, are less likely to accept. And that girls were in this liminal space of being innocent and being able to be precocious, therefore able to be listened to almost in the capacity of a performer, but then as they grew up, increasingly doubted and undermined and not accorded real power. So I don't think it's an accident that many of the girls, especially in the first half of the book that are mentioned, come to public standing by speaking, that their words are captivating, that they have charisma, that they have these qualities that people like to listen to, almost the way people are charmed by child stars. But as we all know, the process of growing up as a child star is not easy. And I think that is where the respectability issue often comes in. Why was Claudette Colvin so summarily cast aside, especially after it emerged that she was pregnant? Well, can you really call her a girl anymore if she's going to be a mother? Can you really accept that kind of gospel from somebody who is tainted, so to speak, by you know, not being married, being this unwed mother, being in high school still, I think that compromised her standing as someone who could be trusted, who was seen as selfless, pure, all those things that we want from teenage girls. Uh, But it did come up over and over again. There's, you know, a few, a little later in the book, conversation around Title IX and the role that pregnant teenage girls, in fact, played in securing the rights of all students in high school. They were not the people you would expect to wage that battle for equality, but they insisted to on their education and to be seen as students. Their example was really fascinating to me. I think that there is an element to these movements where it's no wonder that the people who are helping to orchestrate them want the best possible face for the movement. You know, it was an incredibly fraught time advocating for civil rights, incredibly dangerous. The stakes could not have been higher. And so I have almost sympathy for the people who said, this is, we cannot take this chance. We need the perfect person. She needs to be exactly right in every way. They didn't have, you know, a lot of opportunity to, to make these arguments. But I think that we lose something when we hold girls to this standard, this impossible standard of purity and excellence. It's just something that every girl is going to grow out of in one way or another. Adding on the layer of race, do you think that that still holds true, that we're willing to listen to young Black girls more than we are willing to listen to Black women? Do you think that there is another wrinkle in here? 100%. Even to be seen as a child is racialized. The privilege to even be seen as a girl, to be seen as a young woman, uh, there's no question about it. And I think that comes up so often in the civil rights movement, but it also comes up now. We are not free from that kind of discrimination. When I talked to Naomi Wadler, who became very involved in anti-gun violence uh, movements shortly after Parkland, because she wanted to draw attention to gun deaths in the Black community, particularly facing Black women, she was totally lionized and in, in a lot of ways embraced But she would be the first to say, and she says this in the book, the substance of what she was trying to bring to the fore was not engaged with. She was kind of accepted as a messenger or as someone who had a lot, again, of charisma, presence. But what she was advocating for, in a lot of ways, got erased by what a good messenger she was for the issue that she was trying to draw attention to. I think that is 
you know, in addition to not being heard, which is a huge problem and comes up in the book that white girls are just listened to more often than black girls. There's the added layer of once a black girl has been accorded or seized a microphone, how much are we engaging with what she has to say? And how much are we doing that thing that is so tempting and can feel so satisfying, patting ourselves on the back for even listening at all? And I think that is a problem that that Barbara Johns faced and that Naomi Wadler faced and their generations apart. So it's a huge issue who we even see as a child. And that has racial implications. It has implications when it comes to gender identity, identity and sexuality. We do have a vision of a girl. And I think a lot of people, whether they would like to admit it or not, when they hear the word girl, they're picturing a white girl with pigtails. And that remains the American idealized standard. What I credit the girls in this book for is that often, rather than try to grow up and try to be seen as adults, they in fact insisted that they be seen as children. And I think that's one of the things that Barbara Johns does. And that comes up again in other civil rights battles. They didn't say, I'm a grown woman, you have to listen to me. They said, I too am a child and I have rights and I deserve a standard of equality precisely because I am also an American child, you know, who deserves a certain level of respect and the same civil rights as anybody else. I think it's a very powerful for someone to seize and insist on their girlhood in a country that would deny it to them if they didn't. One of the main things that immediately struck me was when you wrote that in quotes, the tropes of conventional girlhood, such as friendship, gossip, a taste for drama, have made them such able activists. So gossip, drama, cliques, these topics are typically ascribed with negative connotations. But you explain the ways in which they've been instrumental in young women's contributions to revolution. And I have to tell you that if I would have read this in high school, I would have been like, hell yeah, (laughs) it was all worth it. Can you talk about how you started making this connection? Yeah, I can't even take credit for for at least the idea beginning to dawn on me. I was reporting a story about Greta Thunberg for Glamour when I was there as the culture director. And what I realized in talking to Greta, I talked to a lot of girls who were doing the Thunbergian work in their own countries, from Germany to Belgium to France, uh, you know, across all Morocco, all all different places all across the world, uh, there were girls who were running these movements. And I hadn't actually set out to talk to only girls. I had tried to reach out to the people who were leading climate activism in their cities and countries. And it just emerged that so many of them were girls identified as girls. And I asked one of them what she thought was the reason that girls had jumped to the fore of this particular movement. And I really had no expectation of what she would say, but what she did tell me was that she felt like girls were just better at this. They were better at this in part because doing this kind of work required collaboration. It required having a vision for the world that involved consuming less, trying to do less, trying to work closer to home, trying to strengthen ties in your own community. You had to be, and this part I love the most, you had to be willing to be a little dramatic to make this case, to really explain the stakes, the emotional and real stakes of the climate crisis that we are all living through. And she felt like, you know what? Girls are better at that because girls have been socialized to have a little bit more flair, be a little bit more dramatic. 
you know, up the ante a little bit more. And she didn't say, and she would, you know, she never would have thought, and I certainly don't think, and I tried to make that clear in this book, that girls are born as better activists than boys or than people who are non-binary, but that girls are socialized in such a way as to cultivate some of these qualities that make people really good activists. That's really interesting. And I think it also makes me feel really good. Um, So I'm glad you included it in the book. We deserve it. We deserve it. We do deserve it. It's like, well, yes, we had mean girls, but we also could use those talents for good, not evil, right? It made me smile reading that for sure. I want to bring in something that recently came out. You're publishing this book during what I think we recently have come to know as a bit of a crisis for girls in America, specifically teen girls. Last month, the Washington Post published an article on the ever-increasing violence and trauma that teen girls are subject to. The CDC found that teen girls are more likely to commit suicide, experience depressive symptoms, abuse illegal substances, and experience cyberbullying than boys at their age. Additionally, there has been an increase in the percentage of teen girls who have experienced sexual violence. I think these are, you know, statistics are very striking and and scary. In your book, you talk about mental health concerns. What do you view as the relationship between, if any, mental health and activism? Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think, uh, One of the messages of the book is that for all girls have done and contributed, the takeaway should not be girls are impervious to pain or are superheroes, untouchable, you know, can give and give and not feel the pain of the work that they do. It's not true. uh, And it has never been true. I think that uh, mental health and activism, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because, I talked to girls and read extensively about girls who said, were it not for their activism, they would feel more depressed. That was particularly true in the climate crisis, but it came up in old accounts too from the civil rights movement that the idea of engaging in activism, that feeling of control that being an activist can give you is really empowering and that it can help defray some of the painful realities of simply growing up as a girl in America. Definitely, again, particularly compounded if you are from some other marginalized identity, if you're Black or trans, Indigenous for sure. These are huge issues. And that finding a community in activism can do what finding a community often does, which is help take you outside yourself, bring you a sense of togetherness, a sense of fullness in your life that's bigger than just you. But on the other hand, I think the pressure that we put on girls to be excellent, to be perfect, to never mess up, activism amplifies that. What are the societal structures that we need to put in place so that there is less pressure on girls and so that the options are not save us or, you know, fall into this dark place. We need to have a middle ground so that girls can feel empowered to make change, but not that the world is depending on them to step up to the plate and do what the rest of us have not been able to do. But there's no question the statistics are scary and and they have not moved in a positive direction. And the girls that I spoke to for the book reflected that feeling of genuine terror of where this country in particular is headed, but in what will become of, you know, the planet. And I think that you see that and hear that a lot. I have found personally in my own life that like, yes, in times of feeling powerless, 
engaging and using the to the best of my ability, my power to help other people is a very empowering feeling. It takes no matter kind of where I am in my life that that takes me out of my circumstance and I think is is really beneficial. And it seems that that is echoed in the experiences that you write about. It seems to me that the cons in a lot of ways relate to social media. And you talk a lot about this in the book. And I think it's a really important frame and lens to look at activism and the rise of young teen girls as activists, especially today, that there is both this impulse to kind of neutralize them into celebrities, but also I think commodify these girls as celebrities due to their activism and therefore kind of expose them to this whole world that they certainly didn't sign up for. And I think that it makes me think a lot about the Parkland kids, for example. I'm very aware that we're not putting the genie back in the bottle. Social media exists. It's going to continue to exist. It's going to continue to operate in many of the ways that it's operating now. It is, and I, I make this clear in the book, an incredible tool of organizing. Many people meet fellow organizers on social media, use social media to organize, to draw attention to issues that might never reach a national or international audience were it not for that way of connecting so quickly. Is there a way for us to help teenage girls on social media, whether they identify as activists or not, get in touch with the boundaries that feel good to them? But how can people and girls in particular, who I think are vulnerable to this as, again, socialized to be people pleasers, to be connectors, to engage, to receive, how can we help girls understand where the profile begins and the self ends? You know, how they want to choose deliberately to engage with this tool. And and I do come back to the word boundaries a lot because it's not that it's on the girls to set boundaries that everyone else has to follow. As we know, the violations are everywhere. But to, to just say you don't have to be all giving all the time and you don't have to pour yourself out all the time for this world that is not always going to give it back to you. Um, and so I think that has to be part of how we socialize girls. And that's on all of us. And boundaries, by the way, a great thing for everybody to learn. But one of the things that comes up in the book that, like, if I had all the time in the world, I would write so much more about because I think it is crucial is intergenerational partnership is part of the answer. And having activists be exposed to men and women, people who have been doing this work for decade after decade, that partnership is so important. And adults will say that being around young people gives them hope and inspiration. And people who, you know, have been mentored by someone like Dolores Huerta, who's in her 90s and still doing this work, will say, talking to her gives me a sense of what longevity means in this movement, how I can you know, maintain my sense of self and continue to do this work, how I can have a family, have maybe this is the career I want, or maybe it's not the career I want. Maybe I want to be engaged in activism in one way or another. Having examples is so critical. And I think one insidious thing that we all do is the celebritizing element is one big problem, but also the kind of separating girls out from their context is part of the problem too, that we want to make girls in opposition to adults, that they are doing away with the old ways of doing things and have developed these new, unbelievable systems for organizing that that kind of atomize them and never before seen, exactly. And I think it does them a discredit. It discredits, you know, 
it, I should say it does them a disservice, but it also cuts them off from resources and help and support that could really make their way so much easier in this complicated world. I think young people have so much to offer grownups, for lack of a better word, and adults have so much to offer young people. And it really needs to be a partnership. And one of the things I tried to do in uncovering these histories in the book was to recontextualize these girls in their communities and their families. It was not so simple as they simply swore off everything that had come before them and headed out on their own. You know, they had mothers, grandmothers, fathers, uncles who supported them, who gave them, you know, a haven when things got really hard. Uh, And I think that infrastructure is still out there. And if we really wanted to help girls, we would help those puzzle pieces fit together. We would help connect girls who are doing this work now to women and people who've been doing this work for a long time to show them that there is a path and that it doesn't require complete self-sacrifice to keep doing this work. Well, thank you so much for mentioning that. I do actually think that intergenerational activism is really a solution there um, and does seem like it also gets at what we spoke at, about at the beginning, which is kind of taking away this impulse to only listen to teenage girls and and to say that women, old women in particular, have nothing to add or nothing of value to, to, to give to us. I think that the partnership there is actually a solution in many ways. I'm really happy that you brought that up. The article itself, the, the CDC study, made me think of the concept of premature knowing, which is the term that Dr. Nazira Sadiq Wright coined to discuss the advanced maturation some girls undergo due to race, socioeconomics, or other circumstances. I also think of Darnella Frazier here, who, as a Black teenage girl of 17, knew to record, again, bringing in social media again, knew to record an example of police brutality that she was witnessing. Her video and her ability to use social media launched a movement. She captured the brutal murder of George Floyd. How do you think girls' activism and engagement is impacted by this widespread premature knowing? Yeah, I think part of the tragedy of premature knowing is that on some level, and I don't pretend to know what Darnella Frazier was thinking when she did what she did, and we all collectively owe her so much for having the presence of mind to do that. On some level, we all know what is, you know, who are the kinds of witnesses that are believed and who aren't and who needs that kind of extra level of credence and who doesn't. And I think it doesn't surprise me that a teenage girl, like we have said, who has so much facility, who understands social media, who knows the power of video, this is not the first time that someone who's been subjected to police brutality has needed, you know, the family has needed a video as proof of what happened and that had there not been video evidence, who knows whether justice would ever be done. Um, But, you know, a teenage girl knows that she needs to record, uh, that someone needs to do that. And I would have loved to talk to Darnella Frazier about what she did. And I think to her incredible credit, Darnella Frazier has decided that she doesn't want to give a lot of interviews about this, that she doesn't want to be a public person, a public teenager in the ways that maybe the public would like her to be. And so that too is is part of the legacy that I explore in the book. There's currently a, a war on our education system. On We've got education gag orders all across the country in different communities popping up. You know, AP African-American history was banned in Florida 
One line I loved from the book is schools where the war for a more equal America has been waged, which obviously brought me to this massive onslaught of fights that we're seeing about how to teach history, how to teach topics like sex ed, who do we talk about, who gets to be a part of these narratives. And so it all really ties in here. And, you know, to your point, I wonder who will make the actual history books. I mean, if we can't talk about Black history, then I don't have a lot of hope for the inclusion of teenage girls in the accounts of today's uh, events. I mean, yes, I think always it has always been true that your future as an American child is heavily dictated by your zip code. The last thing I want to do is to tell some falsely redemptive story about how teenagers will always find the information that they deserve to find. And, you know, girls have ways of figuring things out that would befuddle the adults in their lives. I think that's true. But I also think, you know, we live in a crowded media landscape. There's a lot of misinformation I wish it weren't the case that if you wanted to understand the basic facts about your national past, you had to wade through some sea of internet sludge to find the truth. Obviously, these things have always been fraught and people in different states have learned different versions of American history always. But the ante has been upped. There's no question about it. And I think we we lose a lot when we are so afraid of telling the truth about this country. And really just to end today, any advice or words of wisdom that you would tell young people who might be listening to this podcast and wondering if they have it in them to be a revolutionary? Do you have any thoughts for them? The answer is yes. Um, My advice would be find a friend. It is the thing that has worked so well for girls and young people over the course of many generations in America. Find a friend who sees things to some degree the way you do, then fight about it. Fight about what the better answers are, the better solutions are. Learn your history, read your books, see who your forebears are. I think it's exhausting for every generation to feel they need to start over. You do not need to start over. There are so many examples to pull from, strategies to copy. I know that some of these activists, even the ones gone long before I was born, would be thrilled for you to copy their strategies. Uh, Build on what's there and feel the responsibility that these girls felt, that it is our job to make the world better and that it's possible. Believing it's possible is a big part of what I think makes teenage girls such a force. They believed it was possible and then they went out and did it. And I think that that is one of the things I've held on to the most since finishing the book. You got to believe it's possible. Maddie, thank you so much for joining us. This was so lovely. You're wonderful. Your book is amazing. I'm so excited for people to read it in June. I'm so glad that you gave us a little bit of a sneak preview. And yeah, just thank you so much for your time and all your work. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, we've got a new series and we need your help. We're looking for stories of how you're showing up in your community. Maybe you're registering people to vote or volunteering at your school's LGBTQ alliance. We want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 212-549-2558. That's 212-549-2558. Or you can email us at podcast at 
We want to feature you in an upcoming episode. Okay, until next week, keep showing up.